Holy Toledo Jiminy Christmas. <laughs> yep. I mean, that's the whitest thing anybody's ever said. Dear listeners, welcome back to another episode of No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Thank you all for tuning in on whatever day it is that you are tuning in. Yeah, thanks. I see that you made that correction even though I didn't say Monday this time. (laughs) And normally I'm the guy that says Monday and then we got to say that. But right, if we're, right. we're just going to say that anyway. I might as well just say Monday. Happy sure. Monday for those Happy of you who are listening Monday. <laughs> here on Monday. It's good to have you with us. We're excited. We got another script. It's a weekly occurrence, but man, it's exciting every time. This week, we are talking to you about Clybourne Park, a script by Bruce Norris. Yeah, uh, this is going to be a fun conversation because this play we read, this is another one of the plays in the echelon of plays that we read in college, and I'm guessing a bunch of people read in college. Or, or I guess that's a good question. Did you read this one in college, Jacob? Or That's right. Yes, I did. Actually, at our college, this play was taught for a while in like the freshman seminar classes, which oh, I think is just okay. really, really cool for a college to teach a play in their freshman seminar classes. And not not even like Long Day's Journey into Night or Death of a right. Salesman, you know? It's like a newer play. This play is a 2011 script, and, and uh, 2010 actually, but won the Pulitzer in 2011. I am getting a little ahead of myself, but I wanted to throw <laughs> that in there. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's that's actually how I came across the play is I uh, read it in, uh, I believe, it's either uh, History and Theory of Theater or Theater is a Fine Art, and uh, that class every year teaches uh, uh, the Pulitzer-winning play of the year and uh, this was the play that was taught in one of the years that I took it so uh, we both interacted with it in college and uh, we're excited to get to talk about it today yeah just really really excited I have really interesting memories about like in freshman class talking about this script and the people that were in that class and hearing it's just such a you know the script has so much to talk about in it that I have all these very visceral memories of conversations that were had around the script. So I'm really interested to see where this one goes today. Yeah, yeah, and so many sides to take. You can There's so many perspectives, and yeah, I imagine that would have been an interesting way to kick off college. But before we kick off our conversation around this script, I do want to just take a second and refer all of you over to our Patreon page. For those of you who have listened for a long time, thank you so much. It, it means so much to have you all on board, listening to the the uh, the episodes that we put out, and, and one of the best ways you can support us is just listening and sharing. If you want an even better way though we are over on patreon.com slash no script podcast check us out over there this podcast is a labor of love for us we love getting to talk about plays uh just in general with each other we enjoy the conversation but especially talking to all of you as well and widening the conversation to include more perspectives it's a, a labor of love for us but unfortunately it is not free there are some fees associated there are prices for the plays that we can't find in our local library and 
spend also a decent amount of time put into these. So if you are a longtime listener or a first time listener and you like what you're hearing and you're looking for a way to support the show, head on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast. Check us out over there. A bunch of cool tiers of membership and different things going on over there. As far as like you, we will give you producer credit at one of the tiers and say your name during the show and all that fun stuff. So check us out on patreon.com slash no script podcast and we'll see you over there. That is right. Thank you for that, Jackson. Back to the script. Back to the script. As I mentioned earlier, I jump in the gun a little bit. The play is a 2010 (laughs) script. That's when it's received its premiere, February 2010, at the Playwrights Horizon. 2011, it was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. So, of course, as we march through these seasons and we get to talk about all these great scripts, the Pulitzer Prize list is uh, one that we're really fond of pulling from. So this script comes both from our personal experience from school, but also from that list of really, really great plays. There are lots of really cool productions, as you can imagine, of a script like this done. Uh, Royal Court Theater did one with Sophie Thompson and Martin Freeman, which is really cool. It did uh, play on Broadway for a while, but also at some really great regional theaters. Wooly Mammoth did a production. Steppenwolf member Amy Morton, who's uh, an actress that I'm quite fond of. She's in one of my favorite movies, Up in the Air. She directed a production at Steppenwolf. Trinity Rep in in Rhode Island did it, and on and on and on. The Guthrie did one. One of the other notable pieces of context, though, that that goes a little bit beyond just the year and the productions as we normally do, is that this play is really intimately related with another play. Some people call it a spinoff. I don't love the word spin-off. It's it's a continuation of the story or a new perspective on a story or a related story perhaps to the famous Lorraine Hansberry play Raisin in the Sun. It involves one of the same characters from that script and then relatives of another character in that script. And the story, as you might remember, of Raisin in the Sun ends with the Hansberry, or um, not the Hansberrys, she's the playwright, the Youngers moving into a house in an all-white neighborhood. And the first part of Clybourne Park deals with the family that would have been selling the Youngers the house. And then the second part of Clybourne Park deals with Lena Younger, who who was the sort of the matriarch of the Younger family, her one of her distant you know descendants who now lives in this what has become an all black neighborhood. Um, so that's how it's related to Raisin in the Sun. Really cool connections to that script. We might find some time as we talk to talk about those. I stole some of your thunder, Jack, but it's your go. That's okay. That's all right. I'll I'll kind of fill in some of the little gaps that I, I want to fill in for this because a lot of this play will unwrap as the play does, which is very slowly. Um, it, it kind of it takes a long time to build and you realize what you're watching or reading as you go. But yeah, the start of the play takes place in Act 1 takes place in 1959 and centers around a uh, family, a husband and wife who are living in a house and who are moving out. We get that pretty quick. They're moving out of their house in the, uh, what we find out is the Clybourne Park area. And uh, it's it's like the week that they're moving. So they're, there's, there's things packed up. They're boxing things up. Um, another notable uh, person within the household is Francine, who is uh, kind of their maid. Um, and I, I'm going to give the ethnicities of all of these characters because uh, it's important for this play. This is a play that deals with um, ethnic conflict and racism and all of that. So uh, uh, Russ and Bev are the couple. They're living in the house. 
uh, Francine is the maid, and uh, she is black. Uh, Russ and Bev are white in their late 40s. Uh, Francine is black in her 30s. Uh, Jim, who is a, a pastor of the area, I believe actually a priest. Um, he's a, a Catholic priest. He's a white in his late 20s. Albert is married to Francine, and he doesn't work for uh, Russ and Bev, but he comes in at one point and plays a vital role in the scene and uh, or in the act. And then there's Carl and Betsy, who are kind of neighbors or community members within Clybourne Park to uh, Russ and Bev. The main crux of the action of Act 1 is the fact that Russ and Bev are moving and uh, moving to somewhere else and they've sold their house and Carl and Carl especially finds out who their house is being sold to and uh, as Jacob said it's the youngers from A Raisin in the Sun and it would be the first black family to move into the neighborhood. Now, Carl is a character from A Raisin in the Sun. He appears in that script. He's the white man that comes to the family later in the script to try to basically buy the house out from under them and prevent them from moving into the neighborhood and then appears again in this story. So that's really interesting. I'm not sure what what kind of a playwriting challenge it would be to write someone else's character into into this new or, or related story. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating challenge. What a cool like a uh, prompt um, for for a playwright uh, to to kind of jump into, and it's pretty quick too. Right afterwards, uh, Carl and Betsy are white, and third uh, Carl is thirty, Betsy is twenty, and um, they. Uh, the conversation Carl had with the youngers assumedly was pretty recently, maybe the day before, maybe even earlier that day. He's coming straight from somewhere. Yeah, he's coming straight from their conversation, in fact. At one point he says, I was talking with this family not but two hours ago. I mean, he has driven from the youngers to the to, to <laughs> Russ and Bev's house and said there you know he he's coming with the, what he thinks will be disturbing news to them that this this African American family is moving in and we tried to buy the house from them but they wouldn't do it so now you have to do something is his hope that that of course is not quite how things go right right <laughs> and we'll dig into the intricacies of that but that's the big sweep of of uh, Act One the kind of undercurrent sweep is uh, that I'll just hint at is there's a reason there's some conflict between Russ and Bev. We know that something is not quite right and the scene slowly begins to unfold um, that Russ is not doing well with something and eventually we find out he is mourning something and we'll get into what he's mourning but that's the other tension that is revolving that, underneath that the scene. that is what causes Jim to show up. Jim the priest as you mentioned he's one of the first characters to come in to, the, to Russ and Bev's home and he is there we learn because basically Bev has asked him to come over and figure out what's wrong with Russ and cheer him up or use some sort of pastoral counseling. Now, normally, Mm -hmm. that would be the end of the synopsis and we would move into our uh, analysis and conversation about the play. Clybourne Park, however, is two plays or one play with two distinct stories. So here you go again, Jackson. Part two. I'm up again. All right, part two. Act two takes place in a whole other time. Same place, whole other time. 
The second act takes place in 2009, with completely new characters played by the same actors, notably. Now, this is going to be a little bit tough for me, because it was tough to keep them straight in my head, and I'm going to try to help you. <laughs> I'm going to try to tell everyone, all of you out there listening, who plays who, but we'll see how far I get. The big... Uh, conflict around the second act is between two couples. Lindsay and Steve own the house that we started in and uh, are looking to do some renovations, kind of like raise the house, build a new one sort of renovations. Right, yeah, they're recent <laughs> buyers. I mean, they haven't moved into the house. They're not living there. They've just recently bought the property and are planning, as you say, to raise it to the ground and build a brand new house in its place. Right. And uh, so in steps uh, Lena and Kevin, who are from the neighborhood. Uh, Lindsay and Steve are both white. They are played by the actors who played Betsy and Carl, respectively, from the last act. Lena and Kevin are played by the actors who played Francine and Albert from the last uh, act, and they are black. Um, and they are from the neighborhood, and what they are there uh, to do is to bring word to them or kind of uh, formally work out the issue of they don't want them to raise this house to the ground. Um, and, and they don't want them to build a higher house in the area because of it, it's a historic district. Um, and uh, the, the, that's the argument that they're using. They're using that argument through uh, their lawyer, who they have brought along, or at least that the community has hired to uh, be their uh, spokesperson as far as the law goes. And that is Tom, who is played by the actor who played Jim in the last act. And uh, finally, uh, Kathy is uh, the other lawyer in the room who is representing Lindsay and Steve, the owners, the current owners of this house. There's one other character, Dan, who is uh, played by Russ. And Dan is a delightfully interruptory character who uh, comes in and out throughout uh, Act 2 with uh, news of some renovations he's doing on the outside. And we'll dig into all of the specifics of that. Yeah, but he, he drops he's like in. a construction worker or a landscape. You know, he they're, they're installing, Steve and Lindsay are installing a koi pond, they say. And he's out doing right. that work and comes to them with several problems interrupting at very tense moments. He's a funny character character as you say he's played by the actor who played russ who is not a funny character and is maybe the bulk uh maybe the lead the 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 central character of act one and then yeah. comes to act two and that actor plays a tertiary character it's a weird thing to try to, in this play in general it's hard to pick out a main character. However, I think I agree that he is the fulcrum of the first act. Everyone is funneling all of their uh, goals and motives through Russ for the first act, even though he is not always in the room. <laughs> right, yeah. So, like you said, the, the, the play is two acts separated by time, with, uh, by happenstance, sort of, the same number of characters that are around. Um, how lucky. How lucky that it worked out that way. It's almost <laughs> as if someone wrote it that way. What? That's a Bible Man quote for all the Bible Man fans out there. Shout out to yeah. you, Bible Man. Everyone raise your hand. <laughs> <laughs> all five of you. <laughs> Had to be more than five. They made like 20 of them. Right, right. <laughs> anyway... Um, 
the play deals with these sort of issues of racism and housing and the words that we use and the way we talk around and about these issues. It's about a community. How does a community deal with change and difference? And the two acts are two separate stories. They there is a there is a world where you could read one of them as a one act and find something interesting in it. Maybe act two gets a little hairy because there's a tag on the end of the scene that is related to act one, but you could figure it out. Not that anybody would or should, just that you could. The stories are separate enough that there's some world where that's possible. However, they work best in conjunction, uh, and and they have some really delightful parallel moments in the script that are are really cool. Here's one example. As we've said, the actor who plays Dan was the same actor who played Russell, and the actor who played Kevin, who plays Kevin in Act 2, is the same actor who played Albert in Act 1. Late in Act 1, at the tense climactic moment where everybody's arguing, somebody's fallen over, uh, people are getting heated and violent, Russ seems like he's about to explode, Albert puts his hand onto Russ and basically says, hey man, calm down. And Russ throws off his hand and says, oh no you don't, not in my house, not in this neighborhood, don't touch me. There, there's some tension there, right? Because it's a racial issue to some degree. It's an all-white neighborhood. Albert's a black guy. There's a lot of racism in the time period. Okay, there's that moment. In Act 2, things blow up. They start to get heated. Kevin is now exploding. Again, played by the same actor who played Albert. Kevin is really upset. He's about to hit Steve. Dan, who is played by the same actor who plays Russ, Dan puts his hand on to Kevin and says, hey man, whoa, calm down. And Kevin knocks Dan's hand off him and says, don't you touch me, not in this neighborhood, you're not going to touch me now. The, if there is, there's a racial element to that as well. And the act where, where Kevin says, not in this neighborhood, this is an all-black neighborhood. Now, uh, now Dan is the, you know, the, the racial minority, at least in that segment of town. So there are these cool parallel moments that relate the characters that you've seen and the journeys they've been on in this kind of, I don't know, yin and yang fashion. Yeah, I agree. The I think the the plot of this play is is a really good plot. It's well developed. It is well uh, executed. And the characters are really interesting. You care about what's going on. You're intrigued. I think the reason this play won the Pulitzer is because of what Jacob just described, is this interplay between two time frames and this uh, unique experience of seeing these people who you watched in the first act get to be different characters and and come at it in a different way and thus end up saying things that they they would have been the opposite of what they said in the first act. For instance, Lena says a line that Carl says in the first act. Almost verbatim, Carl is talking about uh, the the house being sold and this, this black family coming into Clybourne Park and he says it happens one house at a time and then it all goes and it's a domino effect or something to that effect. Lena says the exact same thing in the second act. It happens one house at a time you start tearing things down you start moving in and and like rebuilding and and so, so that those sorts of right. parallels and, and, are really fun to see what makes it interesting is the context of those two discussions because in the first act what you're dealing with is a white neighborhood who says we don't want black people to live next to us 
And if they come in, they're going to change the face of the neighborhood. Our property values are going to decline. We're not going to be living near other white folks anymore. People are different. And so Carl says, this is what happens one house at a time. You let one black family move in. They're going to take over. That's terrible. Right. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. You can't. I mean, that's awful. That's hardcore racism of the time period. Now, in Act 2, the context for that line is very different. What Lena's talking about is gentrification. It's an all-black neighborhood, a historically impoverished neighborhood. And what this white, wealthy couple has come in to do is to raise one of these historic homes and put up a brand-new fancy home in hopes of elevating the neighborhood, quote-unquote elevating, gentrifying the neighborhood. And Lena says, this is how it happens. These are how these communities across America, across the world, are getting destroyed and turned into these neighborhoods for rich rich white urban liberals basically you know that's how gentrification (laughs) works yeah she says one house at a time this is how it happens and you're right i mean those are the things that make the play so cool is to watch these parallel situations words relationships happen in entirely different contexts yeah and and it feels like it feels like such a cool surprise, right? It almost makes me feel like the second act uh, carries the weight of the show, not because the first act doesn't, but because all that intricacy is in the second act. Um, the, and the, right, the payoff happens in the second act. Yeah, and 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 again, it's not it's not for lack of interest in the first act because the first act is really interesting. There's these people who are moving out, and Russ uh, Russ uh, is is clearly working at something he's he's upset about something and eventually what we find out is that their son died a while ago and i think that's all that we know for a while right jacob is just that he died somehow for Um, a while although you know we say a while in terms of like the breadth of a story of course this you know this Act one is only the first half of a not especially long play. I mean, it's not short, but it's not like it's like a four hour play. So we don't, you know, we learn it over the course of act one, more near the end of act one, we start to figure out exactly what occurred, but that's not, you know, it's only minutes from the previous moment. Yeah, that's true. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I I at least for a while was kind of deceived into thinking that his son just died in the war. And that they were that they were kind of dealing with that grief, but what we find out is that their son, in fact, killed himself, and Russ is is dealing with the grief of that quite palpably still, probably more than not more than Bev, but um, he's 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 having a harder time getting over it. It's been years, but he's still working on it. Yeah, and he's cl- I mean he's clearly suffering from depression, right? Bev describes Russ as sitting up all night, all the time, constantly thinking about it, having a really really doesn't want to interact socially with anybody. He's left all the social clubs he was a part of, and he spends a lot of time alone. Their marriage is really suffering as a result of this grief that they are carrying. And, you know, it's an important thing that that Bruce Norris has given Russ and Bev to explain their objection to Carl's objection. 
Because Carl, <laughs> the quote-unquote racist character, of course, one of the things the play asks is, you know, where is the racism in all of us? But the quote-unquote racist character of Raisin in the Sun that reappears, Carl is the one who says, well, we don't want black people living next to us. Now, Bruce Norris could have just written Russ and Bev as just the best white people who just say, well, they ought to have an opportunity. We sold the house. They, you know, they, it's, they should be able to live here. And they, they, the argument could have been fought purely on racial terms, right? This white savior family trying to give this black family an opportunity. But instead, Bruce Norris has given Russ especially, little bit Bev too, this chip on his shoulder about how the community treated him and his son. And that is why he doesn't really care what's going to happen to the community, why he's unwilling to listen to Carl's objections. It's not that he's this great guy, the only not racist white person, you know, in in miles. It's that he doesn't like the other white people in his community. And so they builds these subtle layers that influence the story instead of just, you know, white bad guy versus white good guy, which is which is a story that we see a lot in Hollywood. And and the the subtle layers are so uh, tense, and I just love it, and they and they don't go away either. The one of the because because you're right, Russ is mad at the community for what he perceives as their treatment of his son that ended up killing his son. The first person that we get is Jim, the pastor, who he he like has this conversation with, and the 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 or I'm sorry, the priest uh ends up like trying to counsel him a little bit and like try to encourage him to let go of things and and Russ just <laughs> uh Russ just tells him to get lost <laughs> and more much more yeah, strongly okay, than that. I'm like dancing <laughs> around. I'm trying to decide whether we want to do like a warning on this one or not. But he tells him to go f himself. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, it's a genius series of lines too. And Jim and the so pastor. Deadpan. Yeah. He, he's <laughs> Jim the pastor has some really remarkably funny lines like when he enters and sees the house in total disarray he says i kid you not and i i I, to this moment i do not know whether this is supposed to be funny because the the character understands that what he's saying is so ridiculous or if it's supposed to be funny because the character is so earnest but the character jim the pastor enters sees the disarray and says i kid you not holy toledo jiminy christmas (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yep. I mean, that's the whitest thing anybody's ever said. Holy is it not? Toledo, Holy Jiminy Toledo, Christmas. Jiminy Christmas. And again, I don't know if he knows what he said is so ridiculous or not. Right. I'm not, I'm not aware of that yet. Yeah. And yeah, he's just he's just such a kind of deer in the headlights sort of character who kind of wanders in. Eventually, it gets to the point like Russ repeatedly tells him to go to you know get to f himself, and uh, and uh, so he starts to go, and then Carl and Betsy come over, and he's stuck there because Carl wants him around. So we know. On top of this tense situation that begins to develop between Carl and Russ, we know that Russ and Jim are at odds throughout this. And Bev is kind of begging Jim to stick around. So this whole scene is just this delightfully fast-paced morass of people not liking each other (laughs) and trying to accomplish some sort of goal or conversation even with each other in the midst of all of this mutual... uh, kind of hatred for the other people in the room. Right, and the actual issue at hand, the racism of should we allow this black family to live in our all-white community, becomes 
related to, but related to the tensions of what's going on, but not the, you know, the, some of the crucial element of what's going on is the interpersonal relationships of this group of people. And the racism issue gets woven in and through all of that, much in the same way that it does in Act 2. And in Act 2, the question of how tall can our house be in order to fit nicely into this historic neighborhood is connected to, again, in the issue of gentrification, connected to what is going on. But some of what's going on is just the interpersonal relationships that create the tension of the scene. And the racism housing issue is woven in and through the play, the play's dialogue and tension and conflict, but it's not always really the source of it. It's sometimes the content, but not the crux. That's a good way to put it. It's like, and especially because most of the characters are so trying so hard to make it not be the crux. <laughs> the, like, especially Lindsay, I'm thinking of Lindsay especially in this instance. She is trying so hard to be like, to keep racism out of their conversation. And yet it's like floating, especially for Steve, I feel like it's floating pretty l- close to the surface about him feeling, uh, you know, kind of fragile and attacked during this episode. He's also notably the actor who has played Carl before, so it's hard for us. I mean, it's easy for us as the audience to look at him and be like, oh, okay, I know what kind of what to expect from this person a little bit. And then, of course, there's this weird relationship, and it's not one that I... I'll admit that I totally get the purpose of, which is that Kathy, the lawyer in Act 2, is the daughter of Carl and Betsy in Act 1. Do I have that right? Even as I'm saying it, I'm like, what? I mean, that's such an interesting feature to Mm -hmm. add in. What's the purpose of that, do you think? Yeah, I think what it does is it, it, I mean, this table is, uh, as you're imagining this table, there are four white people and two black people around this table. Um, and throughout the the second act, you begin to realize that uh, Kevin and Lena have the, 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 uh, the kind of local person's argument on their side. They are defending the community and what has been built there and the history that is there and the stories of the people who moved to this area and struggled really hard to be in this area. They're kind of towing the line of we have history and this is kind of why you should respect our opinion a lot more. Um, And then on the other side, you have uh, Steve and Lindsay, majorly new people to the area. And on their, kind of pretty much on their side is Kathy, their lawyer. She's a complicated character and bounces around on sides a little bit, but she's their lawyer. And eventually, kind of in the middle of all this conflict, we discover that one of the people kind of fighting for this house being uh, raised and rebuilt is someone who also has history in the area and is connected to the community. And maybe part of it is this balancing act, as you say. It it connects history to the area, but it also causes there to be a direct relationship to the occurrences of Raisin in the Sun and the subsequent Act 1, you know, following Raisin in the Sun, Act 1 of Clybourne Park. It causes there to be this direct relationship to the events of Act 1 in both parties. 
Hmm. Yeah, that's a good. Yeah, that's a good point. It's like a through line. Uh, connect again. It's such a weird thing to connect to another play and such a classic play, and say that you know a play written in 2010 is connected to Raisin in the Sun. But it does provide this like you know almost sequel level of <laughs> of uh, history that it connects to. And and I think you're right that 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 connection further ties it all together through Kathy. I tell you what, as we're talking about the parallelism and the connections between the acts, I think that the character of Dan, for all his wild interruptions, has just a poignant and powerful one of those parallel moments. Again, Dan is played by the character who played Russ. One of the major things that occurs in Act 1 is that they need to get, as part of their moving process, Russ and Bev need to get this old army locker uh, from upstairs, downstairs. I think at the beginning we assumed to be put into the moving truck. We learn later what the real plan is. And the plan is that Russ is going to bury this army locker in the backyard. Now, the army locker belonged to their son Kenneth, who, as we know, killed himself it's a lot of it's a source of grief and pain. There's a lot of tension about who's going to bring this army locker down. Russ keeps saying he's going to do it. He doesn't end up being the one who does it. But at the end of the act, he's going to go bury it in the backyard under the tree. And of course, this is uh, intimately related to what is going on inside of Russ about the grief of losing his son, the way the community treated them. There's this physical representation, this prop, this army footlocker that literally gets dropped in the way of everything and characters have to trip over it. It's an incredible use of a prop to represent inner turmoil. And then in Act 2... Russ is playing Dan, who is this maintenance worker. He he discovers the army locker buried in the backyard. And a different character, but the same actor, is the person who unburies the army locker and drags it back into the house. I mean, is that not incredible? <laughs> yeah, and that's the, the the kind of, and he talks about it too, and he's talking about like maybe it's buried treasure or Spanish doubloons inside of it. And it's just this kind of ironic feeling that you get from it of seeing the person who knows what's in it, you know, the actor who knows what's in it, playing a character who doesn't. And of I course, mean, it doesn't end there, does it? Because no. the end of the play is everybody, all the rest of the characters have left in a huff. Remember that Steve and Lindsay don't actually live in this house yet. And they've left in a huff. Dan, the maintenance worker, is left behind, or the construction worker, whatever. Yeah, and he's the one leaves who, him in the room. Everybody just leaves him alone, yeah. And he's <laughs> he gets the deadbolt cutters to open the locker. So now it's the character who played Russ playing Dan opening the locker. And what does he discover, Jackson? How does the play end? Well, it's, yeah, I mean, we're early to talk about this in some ways, but it's kind of like one of the confusing moments of the play for me. The play ends with him opening a letter that Kenneth wrote. It's it's, it's his suicide note. He's writing to his parents and saying, I know that you will blame yourselves for what is about to happen. And he doesn't get a whole lot further than that. There's a couple more lines, but he doesn't get all, very far into the letter reading out loud. Because what happens is the ghost of Kenneth comes down the stairs from the house and kind of joins the scene. I think he has a couple of lines, um, but I mean, I'm I'm so shocked at the end of the play <laughs> that it's like, what what is happening? There's a ghost here now. Well, yeah. So um, he, K Kenneth, the, the 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 soldier, the son. Basically, there's a. 
whether it's a flashback or a ghost, as you say, or just a, a new playing of, a, of the scene. But there's another scene played over top of the scene from the 2009 timeline from the 19, what, 59, 69 timeline? Uh, yep. From the Act 1 timeline. And the scene that's being played is Bev... Kenneth's mother come downstairs to discover Kenneth sitting in his army uniform, full press, nice army uniform, writing this letter. Kenneth is not a character we've met before. Brand right. new character. And actually, if you read through some of the intro stuff in the script, it talks about how, well, you could have the actor who has played Tom and Jim play Kenneth, or you could have this be a brand new actor, which I think is a very interesting choice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Boring Kenneth, for that one actor, but yeah, a very it's, interesting it's a very thematic small choice. part for the one actor, uh, <laughs> yeah. but just as, as a, in terms of introducing something brand new as with all the different parallels. And so Kenneth is writing his suicide note. We all know that as an audience. There's some dramatic irony because... Bev and then later Francine in this scene don't know that. So this scene is being played out over top of the scene where Dan, again, who is the actor who played Russ, Kenneth's father, is reading the suicide note. I mean, (laughs) what incredible layering. A new mm-hmm. character is reading this note, rediscovering the tragedy, but it's the same actor. And so in our, in our hearts and minds, the same character as the grieving father rediscovering this note. And then we are seeing this scene play out. I mean, it's just absolutely inspired yeah. images. I, I I agree that the the kind of... The, that image at the end is just like, oh, wow, this is, again, it pays off everything that we've done with the intricacy of it. Um, how do you feel about that scene at the end of the play? I mean, we've, we just went through a whole act of what is basically a fight. Um, it's a slow building fight, but it's a fight nonetheless between these two couples and their lawyers. And and they it ends very climactically. Everyone nearly comes to blows. Names are, th- are hurled at each other. Some terrible jokes are kind of thrown back and forth. And all kind of semblance of propriety is lost um, by the end of this play. Um, and, and then we have this kind of touching family recreation scene what does it what does it do? Does it button up? Does it leave open? what What are we feeling at the scene at the end of it? Yeah, as we've mentioned before, one of the features of just the way that the play is structured that that it it is really weighted towards Act two because that's where so many of the payoffs come. Because in Act 1, when you don't know what's coming yet, it's impossible to catch all of these beautiful parallels that are being set up until you see the other side of them paid off in Act 2. So, if the play ends as Steve and Lindsay leave and everybody's upset, the play ends as it is. And we just know that there are all these parallels, but we only really get to see them paid off in our experience of Act 2. What I like about the tagline scene that brings in the scene from Act 1 is it allows there to be some payoff to some of what we have experienced from Act 1, too. Now some of these actors go back to playing their Act 1 characters, and they start to say things like, you know, one of the lines that Bev says to her son, who the audience knows is about to kill himself. She says, you know, I I think things are looking up. I feel really positive right now. I think things are about to change for the better. And, and and that actress 
is coming from a totally different place at the end of Act 2, right? And Mm -hmm. so there's some, we get to go back and experience some of the payoff in actor relationships. But then for me, the crucial reason why this end moment works so well is this final image of Kenneth in the Act 1 1900s timeline sitting and writing this letter. We all know what it is. And Dan, who again is the actor who played his dad in the Act 1 timeline, sitting and reading the letter in the 2000s timeline. This world where these two stories have come together in this, you know, in this one human being, this one actor who plays both Russ and Dan across two stories. Hmm, I think uh, that that imagery was lost on me in the reading of the play. And I think I think you're as you're describing it and as as you've kind of built this a lot more, I've, I've just like completely fallen in love with that image of the actor who plays Russ and Dan being the, the kind of the thing that you're paying attention to in that last scene. Cause my attention was drawn to this, to this conversation between Kenneth and Bev in the reading of it. And it's like, wow, this is really touching and a little bit really, really sad. Really and, sad. <laughs> yeah. And why, why are we ending like this? I thought we were all just really mad. I was ready to be mad, <laughs> but, but I, I, th- I think what, what is missing in that is, the Russ sitting in the middle of that, not as Russ and, and that, that mind game that we go on, uh, as a result of that. Right. Yeah. Some of the experience of the play is like watching that movie and book. Oh gosh. Tom Hanks was in it. A cloud Atlas, uh, where it's like the same sort of thing. Different actors playing out different but related stories in different times. And just some of the experiences that you know you're watching the same actors, so you make connections across the stories. Now, what that ending scene says, I'm not sure is beautiful in a positive, uplifting way. It's beautiful in an image story way, in an understanding the master craftsman who put this thing together. But it's not beautiful, inspiring. Because, <laughs> right. I mean, what does it say? That this terrible tragedy brought about by a community's rejection of this soldier, this, this veteran come back from, Viet- from Korea. And that that tragedy has echoed across the years, not only in Stephen Lindsay's life and discovering that it happened in the house, but even in the life of the person building their koi pond who has right. come across the suicide note in their backyard. It stayed buried, in, literally buried in the soil, the ground of the house. This tragedy <laughs> is inescapable. I mean, that's not uplifting. Not really. No, <laughs> it kind of justifies some of the fear that Lindsay ends up having when she discovers that Kenneth had been yeah. killed upstairs. Can you imagine how Lindsay would react if she knew <laughs> that they found this locker of that soldier with his right. suicide note in it? Yeah. Can you, I mean, she would just go ballistic. She did <laughs> go ballistic just learning that it happened. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, and one of kind of the the bigger one of the larger climaxes of of the uh, the second act is heard is Lindsay discovering through I think uh, uh, Kevin brings it up that 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 this the previous owner or two owners back whatever their son died upstairs and uh, it it just evolves into her kind of screaming and uh, and and freaking out about it which. Um, which, which, which is a culmination of this argument in the second act. Let's talk around this argument just a little bit. Um, let's give it, give it its due because 
in some ways, this argument plays out like, for me, it played out like... I had a conversation with someone and I messed up the conversation and then I went home and thought about it for three days and then I wrote out the conversation how I wish it would have gone <laughs> or how or all of the like comebacks that I think, you know, think about in uh -huh. my head and like all the traps that everyone sets themselves into and gets caught in and how you how they all weasel their way out of it through throughout it. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> That's it, kinda... it, it reminds me a lot of uh, like that script that we read, uh, God of War, Yasmin and Reza's yeah. script. It's that same kind of like two low context couples, and in this case, also their lawyers, which honestly, lawyers could have been in the God of War script or God of Carnage <laughs> yeah. script. It's the same feeling. Come together at cross purposes, and they're initially, they try to create this sense of, you know, we're, we're all in this together. We can work this out. We're all civilized people. You're part of this historic property owners association. You don't want us to just raise this historic house and build something that looks totally unlike the other historic houses in this district. We just want a nice home to move into. We've already made the plans with the architect and paid a bunch of money to get this done. So we can't just go back and change everything. We're at cross purposes, but let's just sit down, figure it out. And as they discover more about each other, the issues that they're discussing, gentrification, uh, housing issues, um, racism, and the language that is used about racism, those issues become conflated with the fact that they just learn that they don't like each other very much. <laughs> yeah. Not not only across the couples, but intermixed with their lawyers, they discover some of what they don't like about each other. And then we learn that these married couples are also having interpersonal tense difficulties in the situation as well. That are just below the surface, like very, very much ready to go. Yeah, the, the parallels are a little uh, uh, astonishing between God and Carnage of this uh, and, and, and this play. Uh, there are some notable differences. Uh, a, there is no uh, chemical removing of boundaries. They're not drinking uh, throughout. And it's, it's, it, it's kind of just fervor that everyone uh, gets to by the end of this, that they all are arguing their points and, and eventually kind of... Uh, get to the point that they're they're so worked up about it that they're willing to actually say what they mean. Um, the the one thing that is consistent uh, with uh, God of Carnage again as far as a complication is the lawyers are on their phones all of the time, which is just like super tense building. one of the one of the biggest ones is Tom is on his phone talking to someone unrelated. Kathy is on her phone at one point talking to the architect related to this project. But Tom at various points is on the phone talking to someone else about some other project. And Tom is the one with the time crunch. Tom is implementing a four o'clock end time to this, uh, arrange this, uh, conversation. And he's not there for most of, <laughs> for most of the argument at one point. So there's this, these, these, all of these kind of needles get pushed into the characters and slowly their ire begins to build to the point that they just explode at each other. Right, and there are several external factors that cause this increasing tension. One of them you mentioned, characters are being constantly pulled away by their phones, by problems in the backyard, etc., that are causing them to not be able to have just everybody sit down at once and do this. They're being pulled away, so they're forced to sort of engage in this small talk. They're forced yeah. to have a conversation without somebody that really needs to be there, which leaves a hole in what they're trying to figure out. And the external 
external time crunch causes them to feel a lot of pressure to keep moving through the content. And so all of that is weighing on them. Lindsay claims that her and Steve are under a lot of stress because of the move and the finances and things like that. Kevin and Lena clearly have some things going on in their marriage that's causing them to be stressed there. And this is the house that Lena's, uh, uh, like it's her aunt or her great aunt or something, who is the matriarch from Raisin in the Sun. This is the house that the youngers moved into. So she feels a special historic connection to this being the house that the first African-American family moved into this all-white community and they want to raise it to the ground. There's personal stakes involved with the professional negotiation of the house building. And in the middle of all of this is the character of Dan as well, who we haven't like talked about the specifics of him coming in, but he, he like comes in and just sits down at the table one point and starts telling them about the problem of the chest that's in the way of the drain for the poi pond. (laughs) He just sits down and has two paragraphs and eventually like looks around and is like, oh, you all are in the middle of something, aren't you? (laughs) I'm like, yeah, we're kind of in the middle of something there, bud. <laughs> it's like, oh, sorry, I'm a bull in a china shop. And and so all of these external factors are whirling around them. And at, at one point, Le- like Lena spends the first half of this of the second act trying to say something. And just just trying to say a statement about why she thinks it's important that they're having this conversation and and why she's invested as much as she is and it takes half the act for her to get enough people there and listening and paying attention and not apologizing as well because one of the rabbit trails they go off is an apology rabbit trail for how they're not listening to her and it take yeah so it's it just is this painful at times stretching out of this conversation that we as the audience feel that certainly the characters are feeling Right, and there's all these missteps in the conversation too. As opposed to Act 1 where there seems to be some very clear, you know, it's it's Russ very clearly is experiencing the grief of losing his son, which causes very obvious tensions that people are trying to walk around. In Act 2, the questions I think maybe are a little bit more gray. And that partially might be just due to the fact that we have the benefit of looking back on Act 1 and making these parallel converse, these these connections to the stories that we experienced in Act 1. But in Act 2, the issues that come up are things like uh, uh, the Steve feeling like he's being accused of being a racist for wanting to move into this neighborhood and build a new house. There's this question of individuality versus the overall problems in the city. As one, as Lindsay says at one point, you know, we're just one family trying to buy one house to raise our kids in. And are we really responsible for the gentrification of a neighborhood or the fact that this problem exists over all of these cities? And that that becomes a real question for the characters in the act. Is any one person responsible, or is this, as Lena says, this sort of broader conspiracy within the within cities, as we know that it is, to gentrify these poor black communities? Yeah, and and the the personal the personal attacks that end up getting thrown kind of by both sides, but but 
but people, at, <laughs> the way people take things and get offended is also brought up into this as well. The the kind of theme we we talked briefly about the jokes that are said, and there's a there's a series of jokes. We're not going to repeat them. They're they're all very are very racist or quite lewd. Um, so if you want to if you want to see the jokes, get the play, read it. Um, but uh, but yeah, they're 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 thrown at each other, and there's some t- talking around whether or not everyone is offended by these jokes. And a lot of people say they aren't, but most of them end up acting out that they are by the end of the play. <laughs> right? It's, it's like it's it becomes an issue of sort of not taking offense to something, showing that you're not offended right, by the I'm offensive offended. things being said becomes a tactic employed. And then engaging being offended is a tactic employed by unexpected parties. For example, when Steve tells this, look, in, in the scope of all jokes ever, pretty racist joke. In the scope of the jokes in the play, on the lower end of the racist spectrum, but yeah. it is a racial joke. He tells this joke, and both Lena and Kevin say, we're not offended, that joke's just not funny. But Steve's wife, Lindsay, says, well, I'm offended. Right. I'm offended. You shouldn't tell that joke because I'm offended. And Steve goes crazy. He can't believe he can't tell this joke. And it, and the, the joke makes fun of, like, gay sex. It makes fun of uh, rape. There's racial elements involved, as I mentioned. So Steve slowly learns that, like, oh, Tom is gay, and he's offended by the gay sex part of the joke. And Kathy knows somebody who was raped, so she's offended by the rape part. And it, there's this cultural conversation that we're having right now in our society about what it means to be offended. And I found the play remarkably astute for being an eight-year-old yeah. play. That I mean, that part of the play specifically, this, this reaction that Steve has to the statement, I'm offended, I found that to be just just sharp just, into yeah. our current cultural conversation. <laughs> yeah. And a little, a little bit disappointingly that we're still dealing with this issue from eight years ago. But but yeah, absolutely. It speaks right into uh this this people from different uh, backgrounds and assumptions having conversations with each other and 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 rubbing up against each other the wrong way and 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 kind of realizing the faux pas and the shortcomings and all of this business that that <laughs> that is all rotating around this deeper issue the only reason they're talking about this is because they were forced to make small talk with each other it's all rotating around this underlying issue of we want to raise the house. We don't want you to raise the house. <laughs> and it's 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 just brilliant how, again, we're talking about the uh, kind of disassociation through tactics of the main goal. They're, they're fighting about other things with their tactics, but the main goal is still underneath of this this main thing that they're fighting for, which is the the uh, ideals behind keeping this house around and what it means for the community or for the couple. Right, and their goals end up shifting somewhat throughout the act. because, And that happens in both acts. You see them enter scenes with this sort of professional, clearly achievable goal. Carl wants to convince Russ and Bev to rescind the sale to the African-American couple. Uh, uh, Lena and Kevin want to convince Steve and Lindsay either not to raise the house or not to build this wildly, extravagantly tall house in its place clearly defined, you know, racist in in the first act's case, but still professional goal. And they devolve into these personal goals of how can I prove my point? How can I be right? How can I come out the winner in this conversation? And it muddles the issues that should be clear. Right. <laughs> I think the other kind of muddling effect that we get is the, the state of ownership 
of the house as well, because in the first act, it's this group of people talking about people who aren't there um, and kind of plotting against these people who aren't there. They've, they've kind of newly bought the house, but they're not in the house. They're not like physically possessing it. And these group of people are kind of behind their backs trying to figure out how to get them out of there or, or, or make people, other people get them out of there. In the second act, it's a very confrontational thing because the people who own it are in the house, do have some sort of physical role involved in defending it, and there and some and the the people coming into the house to try to tell them not to do something don't own the house. So it's like this 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 other complication of status that it that makes the while while we're rotating around the same issue the power structure is completely different in the second act yeah i think you're you're mentioning one of those really crucial differences between the act which is that in act 1 the conversation is about an external group of people and so the internal interpersonal dynamics have less to do with race, although still to some degree, but less to do with race and more to do with the grief that Russ and Bev are experiencing as a result of the loss of their son and the, uh, the ostracization they felt as a result of what this community has done to them. Whereas in Act 2, there, there's not really an external group to reference. The primary both victims and perpetuators are all in the room and right. everybody thinks the other person is the other one. So the interpersonal tensions have to do directly with each other and the racial issues more directly have to do with each other. And you also kind of have in those two scenes, you kind of have a prequel third scene resting in Raisin in the Sun where Carl shows up and is face to face with those people. So it's just it's this it's this cool journey of of the same very similar conflict being dealt with in very different ways with very different factors at play. I'd love to end our time, Jackson, by talking about the set. Uh, the set is this interior of a house. In Act 1, it is the house in the 1900s timeline. In Act 2, it's the house in the 2000s timeline. There's some descriptions of the set. The set goes through some deterioration over time. But I'm interested in the battleground where within these conversations are set. Because in both situations, the house is in a state of transition. In one scene, being moved out of. In the other scene, being emptied and prepared for demolition. What do you think that does to these situations, Jackson? I mean, all these people could have met somewhere else. The scenes could have been set in offices, coffee shops, restaurants, someone else's home. But Bruce Norris has set us in this transitional battleground in both acts. And I'm interested in what you think that does to the images and the character surroundings as it's reflected in what happens. Yeah, I think what it, it did for me is it, it creates a sense of impending change. And change is, is coming, or change was enacted, I guess. And some characters are fighting against its actualization occurring. However, the physical effects are already in effect. We see in Act 1, they're moving out. And, and one of the big kind of trump cards that uh, Russ ends up playing is, no, we bought a house already, we're moving out, we're done, you're stuck, bye. I never liked you anyway. Um, 
and then the second act is is this is again this kind of similar thing. They started working towards demoing this place, and 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 they were kind of stopped. Their their change that they were trying to enact was arrested by this community group, and specifically Lena and Kevin. And and so what it does is creates this this uh, it's like a timer going off almost of like we're we're kind of gonna do this still unless. Like, you make us stop. We're already doing this. And in both acts, it, that, that similar line is said, but again, with vastly different ramifications. Uh, yeah, I agree with everything you just said. I also think there's maybe two additional layers. One of them is that, see if you agree with me on this, Jackson, because I'm not settled on it, but it almost makes the homes in both cases more neutral. Right. Still in the first act, Russ tries to throw people out of his home. And so he still has that property power. But the power of you're in my place, sitting on my furniture, I'm surrounded by my stuff in my comfort zone is lost to both groups of people. A little more owned by Russ and Bev in act one than in Stephen Lindsay in act two, because they've actually lived in the place, but still mostly gone. So rather than somebody intruding into somebody's uh, place of high status and high comfort, the battleground is just a little bit more neutral. And it's this odd world where people can claim things, kind of as you described, but don't have a full claim on things yet or are actually losing their claim to it more and more as the days go by. It also, the the set descriptions are very specific about the fact that pretty much throughout both acts, people are sitting on ramshackle furniture made up. They're sitting on boxes and crates, well, just whatever they can. You know what moving is like. And that, to me, is a really interesting image, that the, the structures that, are, that would normally be around you in a home like that, rather than being the comforting items that not just people that live there, but visitors might expect, chairs, couches, tables, things like that, everything has to be improvised, basically. It's as if the, the world around them reflects the fact that these conversations are not comfortable, not normal, built out of uh, trying to piece things together. Right, and and that the ideal situation for any of these people is not being met at the moment, and and that that further kind of needles at these. And I think you're I think you're right on with the uh, the the first thought about the power structure as well. Certainly, the other groups whose building it is not use that weakness. I I think Carl absolutely uses that weakness in the first act. He's, he just, uh, <laughs> Russ has to tell him like eight times to leave and Carl just won't leave. And, and, and I think that's part of his argument is that, well, you're, you're kind of, you're kind of leaving already. So is this place really yours? Do you really have any power? And Russ continues to try to assert that he does. And it's um, a reflection of their roots in the community too, right? Because in act one, the state of the house reflects the fact that Russ and Bev are leaving this community. And so a lot of the argumentation reflects that as well. Well, what do you care? You're not going to live here anymore. And we're leaving because you treated us so poorly. And the house reflects that. In act two, Steve and Lindsay are brand new to the community. They have no stake. They have no home. Their home hasn't been uprooted. There isn't one yet. Right. And the house <laughs> reflects that. So they don't have as much of a claim as Lena and Kevin do. 
Yeah, they feel very transient. There's like almost scrappy level of like, but but it's ours, kind of. <laughs> and, and that is reflected in a lot of their arguments as well. There are images like that throughout the play. It's a gold mine of parallels, images, beautiful conversations, some really articulate discussions about race and politics, and well worth your time, well worth teaching in freshman seminar classes. Oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I was so pleased that we had a school that did that for a while. And what is lost in the in the uh, kind of intricacy and the the beauty that is this play's uh, writing and slow development is it's a really funny play it's too. It's hilarious, yeah. In <laughs> yeah. fact, the back cover describes it as a comedy, which for yeah. all of its dark themes and high pressure, high tense situations, there are a lot of real funny things said. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So, so definitely, if you have not picked up this play, definitely pick it up and read it and and see it. I imagine it's still done quite frequently, especially in our current climate. Um, I th I would think that this play has a lot to say to things. So check out this play, produce this play, and when you do, we would love to continue having this conversation with you. If you're looking for someone else who has read the play and interacted with it, uh, hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Uh, we are uh, at No Script Podcast as the username for. All all of those. We also have a Gmail, noscriptpodcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of those sites, and we'd love to keep talking about all of the scenes in this play with you. We would love to, love to, love to. And if you've liked this conversation, if you've liked some of our other conversations, please share them. Share them on your social media. Share them with your friends. The NoScript community is growing. We're so pleased that it's growing. We need your help to continue growing. You can find our podcast on Podbean, on Google Play, on Apple Podcasts, and on Spotify. There's a link to the new episode posted every Monday on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you all for listening today. Until next week when we're coming at you with another play, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. This is No Script, the podcast. Thank you all so much. See ya. See ya.